Uh, yeah, good morning, church. I uh, hope this uh, finds you all well, and um, it's good to be back here again and, and um, well, seeing you such as it is. Uh, today we're continuing our series on Isaiah, and today we're up to chapter 23. Um, so yeah, before we go on, we might uh, we might just pray, shall we? So Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you and praise you that you are indeed a good and gracious God. And Lord, as we tackle this, tackle this text this morning, uh, Lord, we do just ask that uh, our minds and our hearts that are opened, our ears are unstopped, and Lord, help us to uh, understand and, and grasp the gravity of, of what's going on here. Um, amen. So to understand what we're up to, where we're up to in, in Isaiah, um, uh, can I suggest you go back and have a look at Steve's sermon from last week? He did a great overview with lots of lovely graphics and maps, and I, I just don't have that uh, technology available to me. Um, so it'd be really good just if you remembered what he did. But uh, just in short, so chapters uh, 13 to 23 of Isaiah are a series of 10 oracles. And uh, chapter 23 that we're looking at today is, is the last in this series. Now, there is debate that it goes on a bit further, but Anyway, for the sake of what we're talking about today, we'll say this is the last. So the oracle against Tyre is what we're up to. <clears throat> the oracles open with Babylon, uh, back in chapter 13, which is a symbol of military and imperial strength, and they close with Tyre, the symbol of commercial wealth. And if you remember from last week, the ongoing issue being addressed is the pride and self-sufficiency that these people have. Now, Tyre and its history are pretty fascinating in its own right. So I'll just spend a few moments just going over that to help lay the, lay the context of, of, of what we're talking about. So Tyre is located in what we call today Lebanon. Uh, it's about an 80-kilometre drive south from Beirut. In the time period of Isaiah, uh, Tyre, the city of Tyre was on an island several hundred metres off the coast, and that housed the ruling class and the wealthy merchants. And on the coast, just over on the coast, was this, the old city of Tyre, and that provided services to the island itself. So the island of Tyre had one of the best and safest harbours in the region, making it very attractive to merchant ships. And it was also at the crossroads, if you like, of trade. So it became a very wealthy city, and the height of its wealth and influence began about the 10th century BC. And interestingly, its allegiance with Israel is listed as one of the reasons for its success. To quote one historian, commercially this deal between Tyre and Israel not only gave Tyre privileged access to the valuable markets of Israel, Judea and northern Syria, it also provided further opportunities for joint overseas ventures. Indeed, a, Tyre, a Tyrian, Tyrian, I'm not sure how you say that, but Tyrian Israelite expedition travelled to, to the Sudan and Somalia and perhaps even as far as the Indian Ocean. So Tyre. Um, as an island, it was naturally safe from invasion, and it also built high walls right around the perimeter of the island, making it a well-fortified, safe and defensible city. From about 1200 BC, Tyre was part of Phoenicia, which was a collection of merchant city-states, which included Sidon to the north, and that was second only in wealth and influence to Tyre. Now, the wealth and influence of the Phoenicians spread right across the Mediterranean to far off Spain, where they had established the trade hub of Tarshish. Now, no one really knows where Tarshish is, but um, for the most part, people tend to be sort of saying it's in Spain. And um, anyway, we'll talk about Tarshish a little bit later on as well. 
but, but, but Tyre, because of its location and its harbour, it became a very rich trade hub and was, was, was the economic powerhouse of the world, of the Mediterranean world at that time. In the 6th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city. He levelled old Tyre and blockaded the island for 13 years. Being an island, ships could still get in and Nebuchadnezzar didn't quite um, have the ability to block that uh, with much success. So Nebuchadnezzar never broke through, but the city did end up coming to terms with him. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great laid siege. Now he built a causeway from the coast to the island to enable him to, to assault the city directly. Now a well-fortified city with arches and ships at its disposal was able to make this work, building this causeway, very difficult. But Alexander had something at his disposal that Nebuchadnezzar didn't. He was able to bring down more than 200 ships from the land that he had either conquered or made alliances with, and he was able to blockade the city from the sea. So after seven months of siege, he was able to breach the city walls and capture Tyre. And the causeway that he built ended up becoming so heavily sedimented over time that the island is now a peninsula permanently attached to the mainland. So if you look at, look on Google Maps or something, um, look up Tyre, uh, yeah, it's, it's just that. It's just a, it's a peninsula. It's no longer an island. That's because of the causeway that, that Alexander built. So getting back to Israel, during the time of uh, David and Solomon, there was a friendly alliance between Tyre and Jerusalem. In 1 Kings 5, uh, we read that Hiram, the king of Tyre, always loved David. And of course, Tyre provided Solomon with many, many of the materials to build the temple. But in 1 Kings 11, Solomon takes Phoenician brides. Takes Phoenician brides. Now these are actually from Tyre's sister city, sister city Sidon, but biblically they are often linked together. So Solomon takes these brides, but then with them imports the goddess Ashtaroth. And with, with, with the goddess came the worship and the, the places of worship for this false god. And then they are then, from then on, a continual backdrop to the life of Israel. With the people and leaders of, the, of Israel often choosing her over Yahweh. And then King Ahab, in 1 Kings 16, he takes Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Tyre, as his wife. And if you remember, she pushed hard to bring Baal worship into Israel uh, she murdered the prophets of Yahweh and famously she went up against Elijah and lost. But getting back to uh, our time period with, us, with, with Tyre, Tyre stands as the world corrupting influence. Uh, it stands for importing materialism, strange gods and a lust for wealth. Um, so now in tackling the text, which is what we're about to do, I'm assuming you've read the passage for yourself. So if you haven't done that, it'd be a good idea to pause and uh, go and read that. Um, but also, I'm going to assume that you're reading along with your Bibles. I'll be sort of going through pretty much verse by verse, but I won't be reading them all out. So it'd be really good if you had your Bibles handy as well as we're doing this. So verses 1 to 7. So these verses uh, point out what will happen to Tyre and the reaction of the watching world. So in verse 1, uh, if you remember, Tyre was the hub of international trade. It's where there was wealth and where people could get rich. And the ships of Tarshish, as we've mentioned them before, but this was the largest fleet of marine merchants. Um, and again, probably based of Spain at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea. Isaiah tells them to wail because now they are no longer uh, with house or harbour. They have lost their port, the main hub of their economy. 
So they wail. There's no point going to Tyre. It is gone. There's no house or harbour left. And then in verses 2 and 3, Shihor. Not sure how to pronounce that, but anyway, that's another name for, for sort of the Nile. Um, and again, this is with the Nile, this is the never failing waterway. And it's seen as the granary or the breadbasket of the Mediterranean world. Uh, think back to Joseph in, in, in Genesis um, and the drought that brought the region to its knees. And well, with, with, with Joseph's management, Egypt had the food stores to feed the hungry nations. So here, be still and be silent. These verses point out that the merchants of Sidon have crossed the seas with the grain and the harvest of Egypt and that, and that uh, Tyre, the merchant of the nations, the source of international trade and revenue is destroyed. And in seeing what has happened, uh, just yeah, be still, be silent. Um, just, just stand back in awe. There's nothing else they can do. And then in verse 4, be ashamed. The idea of be ashamed, that's, that's the object of derision. And here is the sea speaking. What was once a stronghold, a fortified city and an island is no more, and the sea is mourning as loss. And then also in verse 4, um, remember that this is a culture where children are seen as a sign of blessing and barrenness as a sign of curse. So when the passage talks about, uh, I have neither laboured nor given birth, this is Tyre now. She is no longer blessed and fruitful, but is barren, cursed and blighted of a future hope. Verse 5, the report comes to Egypt and they will be in anguish. The word anguish here is to writhe, to be in pain, to fear and to tremble. Egypt sees that the centre of commerce that have brought them wealth and trade is no more. So what will happen to Egypt's fortunes now? Uh, Tyre falling has effects all over the Mediterranean world. And remember, remember Tyre wasn't just about, wasn't about conquest and travel, but about trade and wealth. Not about lordship, but about money. Their wealth and their city made them think that they are invincible, but they are not. So now in verse 6, uh, we read that they better run, they better hide. Flee to Tarshish. Um, their protection's gone. Their world has collapsed. And then when you get to verse 7, the question there is almost sarcastic. Is this your exultant city? Is this the city you used to go to? Well, now it's all gone. This is a place where refugees come from. I mean, that phrase down there in, in, in verse uh, 7, whose origin is from days of old. Remember when Notre Dame caught fire? That was only last year, believe it or not. But anyway, Notre Dame caught fire. But how France and indeed the whole world mourned the loss. Now, without getting caught up into the, into the, uh, the theology of all this, Notre Dame was built as a place to worship God. And yet the French, one of the most secular nations on the planet, mourn the loss of this church. Why? Because as human beings, we attach great meaning and love to historic buildings such as this. But does God? At the time of Isaiah, Tyre had stood for 600 years and had been an economic powerhouse for about 400 years. So if we can have feelings for an old building in France whose purpose has no real relevance to the culture anymore... How do these people feel about this ancient city that's the centre of their world? And so Tyre, uh, this hub of the Mediterranean world's commerce, where people go to ply their goods and hope to become rich, it's now gone. And the watching world is shocked into silence. I'm not sure if we have the equivalent here in Australia, but it'll be, it would be like the Wall Street collapse during the Great Depression. 
Such was the devastation of that economic collapse. We often remember it for images of people jumping out of windows. Um, there were people who saw that as the only way out. The destruction of Tyre would have caused a similar economic collapse to these for these people. Um, even in well, present-day Victoria, um, what's what we see happening to people's livelihoods and financial security, particularly in Melbourne, right across Australia. Wealth is fleeting. Um, uh, other oracles in Isaiah talk about trust in politics or military might, but here it's trade, commerce, money, and, and we're reminded of the vulnerability and the uncertainty of riches. Now, verse 8 begins a new section. After seeing the devastating fall of Tyre, the question is asked, who has done this to Tyre? This city whose influence can set up rulers and whose very traders and merchants were seen as princes and honest across the earth. So who has done this? And verse 9 tells us, the Lord of hosts has purposed this. The Lord God has planned this and it will come to pass. Um, now, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but this is a bit of an important concept to think through. So we will, we will just touch on it. God will bring about what he needs to bring about his purposes. So if you've got your Bibles, just flick across to Isaiah 45. So Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now that word that, that is calamity in these verses, uh, if you have a quick look at Job 2.10, and I've got it typed up for me here, so I'm, it's easy for me, but Job 2.10, uh, but if you speak as one of the foolish women would speak, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That word there, evil, is the same word as calamity is in Isaiah 45.7. Amos 3.6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Lamentations 3.37-38 Who is there who speaks and it shall come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and evil go forth? Now, we cannot blame God for evil actions, even as he uses them for his purposes. James 1, 13 to 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's not God that does this. God will use these things, but it's people themselves who, who, who freely enact to do these things. And the most evil act in history, the unjust murder of the Son of, of the Son of God. So Luke twenty two twenty two, for the Son of Man goes as it, is, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So a man is going is going to freely and willingly betray Jesus, but this is all part of God's predetermined plan. As bad as things may get, the Sovereign Lord is in control and acting out his purposes. He establishes kings and throws them down. He rises up nations and then he topples them. Is our view of God big enough for this? So back to Isaiah. Isaiah 23, verse 9. 
God's purpose includes to defile the pompous pride of all glory. Now to unpack that a bit more, we'll flick across to Ezekiel 28. So Ezekiel 28, and uh, we'll just I'm just going to read from verses 1 to 7. So I'll just have a drink while you're looking up Ezekiel 28. So this here is Ezekiel prophesying against Tyre as well. So 28, 1 to 7. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. Behold, your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Yes, but you are a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. See, it's not their wealth per se that's the problem here, but it's their pride and arrogance and the pride in her wealth. And the people of Tyre hold themselves up as gods. Our affluence is our stumbling block. Even those in our country, in Australia today, even those who are poor are richer than most people around the world. Um, a lot of the poorer homes in Australia, they've still got their big TVs, they've still got their smart TVs, they've still got smartphones, they've still got a lot of the modern appliances. Um, I'm not saying they're not struggling, but I'm just saying a lot of those places still have all the latest gadgets and mod cons. Um, and remember a few months ago with all the panic buying and rationing of toilet paper and foodstuffs, um, through all that, did anyone actually go hungry? I know for a couple of weeks we were um, uh, making our toilet paper last by using newspaper in between, um, but we didn't miss one meal. So even in times of crisis, even in a state of disaster, we're not missing out. Um, but that's how wealthy we are today in the West. In ancient times, in a state of disaster, people would have been starving to death. And in parts of the world today, people are starving to death. But even us, when we are poor, we're actually incredibly wealthy. Even in a state of disaster, we're self-sufficient. We don't need God. So we think. But here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself. Remember in Luke 8, where women are traveling with Jesus and they provided for him and the disciples out of their own means, out of their own wealth. So wealth can be a very good thing. However, we must be careful. We cannot disconnect wealth from pride and arrogance. Remember Jesus said it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. Um, I'm sure you've all heard this story, and I remember having a, well, say an argument, if you like, a heated discussion. This person was convinced that, yes, a camel could fit through the eye of the needle. The eye of the needle is a, is a gateway going into Jerusalem. And if you took all the, all the saddlebags off a camel and it kneeled down, it could squeeze through. So it was possible if it took all its worldly goods off. Um, but as one commentator said, this is just wishful Western thinking. 
Jesus here is talking about a real camel and a real needle and the impossibility of a rich man entering heaven. So there's a real danger here. But back to Isaiah 23 verse 9, to defile the pompous of all glory. The issue here is that what man holds in high esteem, God does not. God will topple it over and defile it. What the world honours, God will dishonour. Now in verse 10, the port of Tyre is no more. So the merchant fleet goes where it pleases. There is no restraint. The restraining influence of the wealth of Tyre is no more. So Tarshish has no competition now. In verse 11, God stretches out his hands and he's shaken the kingdom. Um, now Phoenicia was in the land that was once Canaan. So hence that reference um, to Canaan here. Um, but so the, so the kingdom shake and the strongholds are destroyed at the command of God. And Cyprus was not under God's judgment. So the reference in verse 12, so you don't see Cyprus judged anywhere in, in scripture in this part here. So the reference in verse 12 is that so even if the virgin daughter of Sion, which is the, the, the personification of the city, even if the virgin daughter of Sidon was to flee to Cyprus, there she would still not be safe from God's judgment. Go ahead and try to escape. There is no wretch for the wicked, even in a supposed safe place. Verse 13 is one of those difficult verses where the they is up for question, with different people having different ideas. But it seems to be saying that look at what the Assyrians did to the Chaldeans. They turned it into a land only for wild beasts. They made it a ruin. So when it's talking about the Chaldeans here, this is the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, the same people. But this is prior to when they became the world power that we, we tend to think of. Um, so, so back before that time, they were overthrown by the Assyrians. And so what the text is saying here, if the Chaldeans, if the Babylonians can be overthrown, well, this can happen to Tyre as well. And in verse 14, so the, in verse 1, the ships of Tarshish wail, as they do here in verse 14. And in verse 10, they may have lost the restraining influence of Tyre, but now they have no safe harbour. And so the ships need to wail. They are now exposed and have lost their economic and physical security. So we must remember that our wealth and security in this world are fleeting. God is on his throne and it's by his hand that nations are judged and they rise and fall. 15 to 18 is the last section in this chapter and it tells us that, that, that God's story with Tyre is not ended. So in verse 15, uh, one king can reign for 70 years. Well, is that literal or figure, figurative? Um, 70 years seems a long time for a king to reign, especially in, in this period. So 70 could be a reference uh, to the fullness of time. But the point is that during this time, Tyre will be forgotten. It'll become an obscure town in a backwater. And, uh, and the passage uses a, the, a blunt metaphor that we often see in the Old Testament. Tyre is compared to a forgotten, washed up prostitute. But she will pick up a harp and sing about herself and people will, will remember her. And at God's hand, she is restored but seemingly unchanged to her old trade and will start to prostitute herself again and make money again. Um, now I find this uh, remarkable, fascinating um, turn of events. Why would God restore her just to prostitute herself again? So in verse 18, notice here that her wealth will now be holy to the Lord. This is not a term that Isaiah would use lightly. 
Aaron's breastplate in Exodus 28 is dedicated as holy to the Lord. And so too we regularly see God's people referred to this way. Isaiah uses this phrase to show us that there was a great reversal in, in, in that what was once a holy, unholy and corrupt is now holy and sanctified. Instead of the corruption of Tyre's wealth, it will be consecrated for God's benefit and her people. Tyre's merchandise and wages will not be hoarded, but will supply food and clothing for those who dwell with the Lord. Now there's a question here. Is this about some future restoration of Tyre? Or is this God claiming that which is his anyway? When Jericho fell in Joshua 6, the silver and the gold was taken to the treasury, and that was deemed as holy to the Lord. So is that what's going on here? So just a couple of things to think about with, with that, though. So just jumping forward a little bit in time. Um, now, granted, this is before um, um, Alexander the Great turned up to conquer the city. But when the exiles uh, are, are returned... Uh, from captivity, they're allowed to return to the Jerusalem and re rebuild the temple. This is done under the hand of King Cyrus of Persia, paid for by him with materials from, in, in Ezra 3, Tyre and Sidon. So it's godless Persian money and godless Tyrian, Tyrian materials being used by God's people to rebuild God's temple. And remember in Mark 7, Jesus is, is in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a woman came to Jesus um, for a daughter to be healed. Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and feed it to the dogs. And the woman responds that even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the children's table. Jesus commends her faith and the child is healed. So what do you think happened when that woman returned home and the other people seeing this as well? Do you think they would have been silent about their meeting and what they saw with Jesus? Um, the gospel goes to Tyre, maybe. In Acts 12, um, uh, we read that Herod becomes angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And if you remember the story, he goes over there and they, anyway, ended up, ended up calling him a god and not a man. But then Herod strikes, um, the Lord strikes Herod down and he's eaten by worms and he dies. And then verse 4, um, it's almost a side note, but the word of God multiplied, sorry, the word of God increased and multiplied. So that suggests that, that, that the word of God was already active there um, and it's increasing and it's now multiplying. And then in Acts 21, Paul's on his third missionary journey and he's on a ship that lands at Tyre. And in verse 4, he seeks out the disciples and stays with them seven days. So Tyre, um, by the time of, at least certainly by the time of Acts 21, has a remnant, has God's chosen people living there. And just as one final interesting note, Lebanon today, it's a Muslim country in the Middle East. And there are estimates that today 40% uh, are Christian. That's Catholic, Orthodox or Protestant. Um, read into that what you will. So the, the, the issue specifically being dealt with here is the wealth and the pride that comes with that wealth. And as we've, we've discussed, wealth in and of itself is not the problem but the self-sufficiency that comes with it, and Christians aren't immune. For starters, you only have to turn on the TV on a Sunday morning to see some of the most extravagant abuses of supposed Christians and their attitudes to money, um, basically flogging the, the prosperity gospel. 
and we see that spreading out to, to third world countries right through Africa and other parts of the world. The prosperity gospel is flourishing. Um, it's just an abuse of, of, of the gospel and it's abuse of money. Um, it's trading in the, in the poverty and misery of others in the name of Christ. You know, that's just appalling. But what about us? Um, how is materialism, how is wealth affecting us? In what ways am I looking to, to things, to my money, my job, where I should be looking to God? I, I suggest we do this far more than we're willing to allow ourselves to admit. Um, you know, it's the old story, um, you know, like we're like fish in water. Uh, we're just surrounded by it. Um, so how, how should we think about wealth? Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I become full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So having too much and having too little can cause us to, not, to deny God. We need to ask for and give thanks for our daily bread. Don't get too caught up in, in, in um, planning for a future that may never come. In Colossians 3, uh, covetousness or greed is quite bluntly labelled as idolatry. It is this that takes the place of God in our hearts. We live in a consumerist and materialistic culture. We're bombarded with ads designed to make us desire products, uh, to feel like we must have this item. Covetousness is lauded and idolatry reigns. And do we really think we can't be affected by this? It's just, it's in the very air we breathe. Revelation 18 is interesting. Um, so it talks about Babylon, that great evil city. So Babylon has fallen. She's become a dwelling place of demons, unclean spirits and detestable beasts, where the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, where merchants have grown rich, rich from the power of luxurious living. And in verse 11, when judgment comes, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her, as no one will be able to buy their cargo anymore. That sounds very familiar to us, doesn't it? Um, but Re Revelation 18, go back to verse 4. God calls to his bride, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. We are warned not to side with Babylon, not to side with Tyre. We are not to prostitute ourselves um, as they have done, and we are to remain holy and devoted to our Lord. It is not the city of Babylon or Tyre we're to focus on, but the celestial city. And we'll finish with 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. The riches we desperately need is that which is available to us through Christ. Jesus came to earth he gave up the riches of what was the eternal Son of God in heaven and took on our poverty. In our natural state, we claim to be self-sufficient. We have no need for the Creator God. We chase after idols, wealth and riches being just one. But the irony being that chasing the wealth, we become poor in our stance with our Creator God and we end up as beggars with nothing. But that is the glory of the cross. Christ took on our poverty so that we might take on his riches our internal inheritance at the right hand of God. Um, 
because I'm working from home at the moment, I do lots of Zoom calls, and because I'm at home, I can put up my own decorations. I'm not held back like I am at work. So you can see this just here behind me. Um, that's just a backdrop that's there. No one's actually commented on it yet, but anyway, it's there. So you can probably see it's a little cartoon of Jesus on the cross, and the blood's trickling, trickling down to his feet, and then they spell out 1 Corinthians 6. Um, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Although it's a free gift to me, this is a reminder to me what my salvation cost God. It took the blood of God to bring me into a right stance with God the Father. And that sacrifice takes me from poverty to true riches. So where, do you, where does your trust truly lie? With your job, your investments, your house, knowing you have the money to get most of the things you want. But remembering that, you know, these things, rust and, rust and moth will eat away. Or do they lie in heaven with Christ, with the eternal God um, in eternity? So that's what we need to keep in mind, I think. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded that uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Lord, we do just pray, help us to remember that fact. Help us to um, yeah, focus solely on you. Help us to see you as a source of our life, of our salvation. And indeed, Lord, the very purpose of our being. Um, as the Catechism says, what is the purpose of man? Uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so, Lord God, we do just pray, help us to do that. Help us to put aside the things that would distract us from you, the idols of our hearts, and uh, help us to, day by day, continue to focus on you, to lean on you, and to learn to do that more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, we'll see you next time.